This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. Joining me today is Vanderbilt Professor Emeritus of Medical Ethics, Dr. Larry Churchill, to discuss his recently published book, Bioethics Reimagined, A Path Towards Health Justice, co-authored with Wake Forest Professor Nancy King and University of North Carolina Professor Gail Henderson. Larry, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here, David. Professor Churchill's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, this volume is welcomed, dare I say, long overdue, because the authors argue appropriately, quote-unquote, bioethics needs an expanded vision, close quote, or beyond one that has predominantly focused on patient autonomy, beneficence, and non-maleficence. The field needs to take, quote-unquote, a more robust role, close quote, and begin to address upstream issues including social determinants, health disparities, structural racism, or in some begin to meaningful address, meaningfully address rather social or distributive justice. The field needs to move beyond what the authors term quote-unquote lifeboat ethics. The impetus for their thinking is largely no surprise uh, due to the COVID pandemic that, according to the CDC, has to date been responsible for 1.35 million excess deaths, defined as the difference between the actual number of deaths and the number that would have been expected under normal circumstances. With me again to discuss the recently published volume, Bioethics Reimagined, is the co-author of the work, Professor Larry Churchill. So with that uh, brief uh, intro, uh, Larry, let's begin. Obviously, uh, this book is premised on uh, this framework or trope you identify as lifeboat ethics. So let's start with uh, what do you mean by lifeboat ethics? Okay, well, lifeboat ethics is <clears throat> the preoccupation with problems at the decisional edge and a slice of life, uh, usually in a crisis or in a very limited time mode in which one has a forced choice. And COVID was full of these. Uh, the bioethics people who worked in hospitals were preoccupied helping institutions try to figure out, for example, when the vaccine becomes available, who will get first priority? Uh, questions about who will be admitted if they uh, have symptoms um, that are severe, who will get access to a limited number of respirators and a limited number of ICU beds if that becomes necessary. And these are all important questions. And there are questions that bioethics traditionally has been fairly well equipped to help physicians and hospital administrators uh, respond to. And yet what's left out of that are the upstream issues, the problems of why do particular populations and particular individuals uh, why do they come to be in need of these services in disproportionate ways? We know, for example, that the severity of COVID uh, was not distributed evenly. It was um, concentrated in poor communities and in uh, black and brown communities. 
And this isn't accidental because it is those populations by and large which have uh, the poorest health status to begin with and are, in a sense, the most vulnerable to illness. So the whole business of rescue ethics is not to say that it's unimportant, but is to say it's a very limited slice of what bioethics needs to be doing, looking at issues of public health, looking at issues of the causes of illness, and the causes of illness turn out to be very largely social. They're matters of where one lives, if you have adequate housing, what you have to eat, if you have adequate nutrition, do you have adequate education, is there a job that's safe and reliable, and do you have access to um, the uh, health care services you need when you need them rather than have to worry about where you'll get them and getting them frequently too late. So our whole beef with um, so-called lifeboat ethics is that it's focused on rescue. And what we need to do is worry more about public health and prevention. Okay, thank you. I do appreciate you terming it as well, rescue ethics. Uh, and relative to COVID, this was the um, the issue was it, it, it generally ignored or possibly reasonably because it was crowded out the issue of pre-existing conditions, uh, right? Exactly. Which of course, of course made the infection uh, far worse for certain people, particularly uh, the frail elderly. The other uh, phrase I think you actually use in, uh, to, to explain this in the book is um, that it's the preoccupation with bedside issues or that phrase alternatively – if the issue was beyond the bedside, it tended, from a bioethics perspective or focus, uh, to be ignored. You also used the phrase, I believe, in the text, this is an intentional simpl simplification, because as you note further, there are these larger social contexts, upstream issues, um, et cetera, that historically uh, have been uh, ignored. Let, let, me, let me, as a follow-up, ask this question. So you argue... Uh, the field, and I'm citing some phrases from the text, you argue the field has perpetuated quote-unquote privilege by implicitly endorsing a profound lack of attention uh, to significant and ongoing health disparities, close and quote, and failing to help ameliorate them. Uh, Lifeboat ethics have quote-unquote driven resources away from persistent and systemic problems. So uh, this is uh, this is an interpretive question, but the question is, I, I'd like to ask you to opine on is, is how harmful has this uh, approach or focus been? And I'll explain in part why I asked this. Um, I moved to D.C. in the 90s. I worked at, at D.C. General Hospital. And somewhat coincidentally, soon thereafter, I found myself providing ethics instruction to Georgetown Medical School students. So I'm sure you can imagine the discrepancy between uh, per your phrase, persistent and systemic problems D.C. general patients faced and the bioethics we were teaching to Georgetown Medical School students. So th that experience uh, in part informs why I asked this question. I mean, this is, I would, I would assume you would agree, this has been hugely problematic or has held the, 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 the field back. Yes, I think it has. And thank you for citing that. Um, yeah, there's there's no question that bioethics, as it has been traditionally taught and understood, um, has been in the service of 
problems as defined by physicians and by the medical profession and not as defined by uh, the question of health, who's healthy and who isn't, not defined by public health understandings about what constitutes health. And this has been pernicious in the sense that the whole idea of health has been sort of kidnapped by medicine so that we think health is getting to a doctor and having health insurance. And health is really far more about these other social factors I just mentioned, like food and housing, nutrition, education, safe jobs, safe neighborhoods, and so on. So the damage has been substantial, and it's been been there for quite a long time. Prevention programs are traditionally underfunded. I used to run a prevention program at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and we scraped every year to get funding for our residency training. Whereas if you were in something like cardiology, internal medicine, or another uh, flashy field, um, you know, no problem. Right. Uh, absolutely. Um, I'm going to note there's a Harvard-trained uh, physician anthropologist, obviously in the mold of Paul Farmer. His name is Eric Reinhardt. And in February, he wrote an essay, and he termed this, and I think you'll appreciate it, he termed this problem or effect uh, clinicism. And he defined uh, uh, one way he explained clinicism um, is he said, uh, clinical reasoning is not only not the population level logic of public health, it is frequently antithetical to it. So I was reminded of his comment or observation um, in context of, of what, what you are writing. So let's, let me have, I do have one related uh, uh, a side question I would like to ask, uh, actually two. The first is, you mentioned uh, several scholars that inform your work, and I'm curious for the listener if you could identify a couple that you think would be worth a while they're pursuing or they're reading. I was particularly struck since I read some of his works, Charles Taylor, uh, one of your colleagues, and I think in a chapter uh, early on, maybe the chapter two notes Charles Charles Taylor's writings. Uh, but any that you think would be fruitful or useful for the listener to uh, review. Yeah. Um, thank you for the opportunity to do that. Uh, Charles Taylor is, is incredibly important in terms of our understanding of the social dimension of justice. And uh, he's written some really wonderful essays. One is called uh, Irreducible Social Goods, in which he's talking about the goods in society that don't just accrue as a cumulative uh, counting up of individual benefit, but really expand into something larger. Um, Norman Daniels is a great example of a very prominent bioethicist who began his career really worrying about allocation in the traditional way um, in terms of sort of rescue questions, and then turned his attention to public health and uh, has been arguing that bioethics has missed an opportunity here to worry about the ethics of justice uh, upstream, the way uh, public health officials have been urging us. Um, so he he has, I think, been one of the leaders in this. Um, 
He also the book by um, Madison and uh, Faden out of Hopkins about justice uh, in healthcare, and uh, it, it's really a wonderful book and gives us a paradigm for a different paradigm for how to think. And of course, that's what we're urging in our own book that uh, Nancy. King and Gail Henderson and I wrote, uh, we don't necessarily need to endorse any particular understanding of justice. We just need a socially informed notion of justice rather than the highly individualized one we now work with. Okay, thank you again. Um, I'm sure I've made note of this over the last 10 years numerous times, and that is somewhere between 70 and 80% conservatively of health status is determined by social and I'll say as well environmental uh, circumstances, that clinical care is somewhere between conservatively uh, 15 and 20 percent of of one's uh, health status. So per your point, I I do want to make note of that again. The other other related question is, I'm curious, I have to ask this, how has this um, interpretation or or this argument been received uh, by the profession? Well, I think generally speaking with uh, politeness, but not any uh, or much effective action. <clears throat> so one thing to ask is to, is to ask what are the prominent training programs in bioethics now doing, such as the one in Georgetown? I mean, are, are they teaching the social factors, the upstream mm-hmm. look, the bigger vision of bioethics we think is needed? And I don't see much evidence for that, but uh, I'm very hopeful. And one of the reasons I'm hopeful is because I think uh, the problems of the Anthropocene, the climate mm-hmm. degradation, and the crises, political, social, and especially health, will be a sobering factor in bringing us around to a, a more holistic view of health. Yes, let's hope. Um, I So I asked that question in part because I looked at my emails and literally almost to the day uh, a year ago, I was back and forth and, and, uh, and I'm sure you well know, this is the ethics research uh, um, uh, Institute, the Hastings center. Right. And in fact, right. actually I just went to the Hastings center website in preparing for this. And I saw your name uh, there, I think in discussing uh, this issue, but my experience last year to reinforce your point is I, I found a year ago that they they really hardly at all recognized, much less discussed, or, or discussed, much less recognized, rather, uh, the Anthropocene, as you phrase it, or the climate crisis or tragedy. In fact, I think it amounted to the, uh, they actually interviewed Gary Cohn, who runs a shop in Boston, uh, right. to discuss the issue beyond that, but they, they really hadn't done uh, much work. So just since I mentioned Hastings and I since I saw your name on their site, I'm hopeful that Hastings is coming around on this. Well, I'm hopeful, too. Uh, you're right. They had a wonderful interview with Gary Kahn, and uh, I just thought that was one of the best programs they had ever done. And I talked with some officials at the Hastings Center about a project which would give more focus to uh, global warming. And um, they couldn't get it funded, which I thought is kind of typical of the times. But um, 
Yes, there are enormous ethical issues that face us, and not to be prepared for them uh, seems to me uh, just enormously short-sighted. So, you know, I'm hopeful. I've had a similar experience with the National Academy of Medicine, to which I belong. I thought they were very slow off the mark. They now have a working group, and I think they're um, really making some progress. But uh, like a lot of people, they were so overwhelmed by COVID that they didn't give much attention to uh, global warming. And, uh, you know, every, every minute in this whole process counts. For every 0.1 degree centigrade rise in temperature, 140 million additional people are endangered. So the clock is really ticking. Right. And let's, we're going to get into the last chapter again on the climate. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you mentioned the NAM. Dr. Victor Zhao is president. They started almost two years ago their action collaborative to decarbonize the healthcare sector. I, I'm not a member of the collaborative. It's about 50 folks. I spent a lot of time though talking to participants, the NAM, and it's co-sponsored by HHS and talking to as well related uh, HHS staff. In fact, just emailed uh, this morning. So let's, um, so we're, we're moving towards uh, your argument uh, that bioethicists should be more in, involved in policy. Of course, climate, uh, the meta problem that it is, is, is prominent here. Just to make note, your chapter five is titled Bioethics and the Global Warming Crisis. So this gets towards the issue of bioethicists becoming more involved in policy making or advocacy. Um, as you say, the opportunity to weigh in on policy is really, quote unquote, because of the real, te- there's a real task or assignment for bioethicists, as you say, to ameliorate social inequities. And of course, the climate crisis has been defined, not surprisingly, by the Special Rapporteur on Climate and Poverty at the UN as climate apartheid, not surprising. And the rapporteur at the time mm. was at NYU law school professor, so he wasn't uh, someone overseas. Uh, Phil Alston made that uh, comment and wrote that report in 2019. But let's go to, let's go to chapter five. Um, uh, Explain why you wrote it and what you tried to accomplish by writing. And you wrote that chapter. Well, I drafted it. Uh, I mean, all three of the authors really had a major hand in uh, revising uh, everything in the book, and we stand behind the whole thing. But yes, I was the primary author for this. And I think that's because um, it has been on my radar now for about uh, five or six years. Um, if you want to talk about injustices, uh, you know, the, the global climate crisis is, is just full of them. Uh, for example, between rich and poor nations, mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. carbon footprint is 10 times that of India. We can also divide it in terms of this is what um, Oxfam did. They, they said that the analysis should be between rich and poor populations. And by their calculation, over the last 70 uh, plus years, the richest 10% of people on earth have contributed more than 50% of all greenhouse mm-hmm. gases. Um, you could also talk about the injustices in terms of who will suffer 
And it's very clear that the polluters will probably be the last to suffer. And the people who have done the least to contribute to the problem of global warming will suffer and die disproportionately first. And this is because of where they live, um, their net worth, their ability to adjust, uh, their ability to affect things politically, um, and, and so on. But it's these are injustices which are just written into the whole uh, global warming crisis. Yes, and I think the reason for the reason for including this is to say that bioethicists need to be deeply concerned about this and deeply concerned about the ways in which their own institution with the idea that most of the bioethics community work in academic medical centers and large hospitals the way those centers are in fact trying to prevent disease and help people but at the same time they're great polluters so at least five percent that's a conservative estimate of all the pollution comes from healthcare institutions. And so cleaning up our own house seems to me one of the first things that bioethics can do, one of the first and most obvious kind of avenues uh, to try to affect some change. And then there are you know much larger policies beyond that. Well, thank you for that. I'll I'll uh the, the the chapter is straightforward. Uh, you state in it: bioethicists are making a belated um, are 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 belated in addressing the climate crisis. To quote, um, per the industry's own contribution, quote unquote. Ironically, the very centers devoted to healthcare contri- are contributing to increased ill health through their production of environmental toxins that damage health and shorten life. Uh, this is my, uh, I've done at least 40 interviews on this subject over the, over the years, again, the climate crisis, and you're right, 5% of total global healthcare emissions are from the healthcare industry. If the U.S. healthcare uh, industry was its own country, it would rank 11th or 12th in the world in, uh, yep. carbon, uh, CO2 equivalent emissions. Um, so the, the irony is, is, is profound. Um, uh, and in fact, you say further in the chapter that, uh, it's deeply regrettable that it took so long to recognize how neglected justice has been in medicine, human research, and bioethics more generally. Um, let me just, since you mentioned the National Academy of Medicine, and I'm pretty certain, uh, I'm correct, but to your knowledge, is it the case that the National Academy of Medicine's Action Collaborative does not have a bioethicist amongst its 50 participants? I haven't checked recently, but when I did, that was accurate. Yeah, and I don't think that's changed. So that's a hint, Professor Churchill, to uh, maybe uh, send Dr. Zhao an email. But let's um, – so let me just ask you more uh, specifically – I'm assuming bioethicists can work within their institutions. You mentioned academic medicine, um, uh, working with Hastings, uh, other opportunities. Uh, what, what are other opportunities for bioethicists to become involved and make a difference uh, on this subject? Well, one obvious thing is to start 
more serious collaboration with experts in public health, social epidemiologists and environmentalists, so that there is an ethical dimension to all the kind of analysis that are that are put forward. That is done occasionally, but not often enough. Another thing is that um, sometimes the bioethicists have been very useful in trying to educate uh, public officials, such as state legislatures. Mm -hmm. I don't know how feasible that would be these days, but um, the idea, if you want to learn something about environmental ethics, uh, there's expertise around there for weekend workshops and for other kind of sessions uh, that could be educational, I think, to policy makers. Um, Another thing uh, really has to do with the way in which we exercise uh, the voice that we have so that if bioethics <clears throat> could turn at least some of its attention to these things through publications, through special reports, through um, the, the work, for example, that the Hastings Center puts out, mm -hmm. uh, policy statements, these can be helpful. But, um, you know, the, one of the daunting problems is public literacy and um, the idea that, you know, it's just too big to think about. It's just too difficult. And you have to begin to think a little long term. You have to begin to think about the next generation and you have to think uh, not just locally, but uh, in terms of uh the larger uh, country and and the globe, you know, uh, CO2 has no national boundaries. Uh, if we pollute, you know, we're polluting everyone, as we've, you know, recently been uh, reminded by the Canadian uh, right, forest. Yes, 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 yes. But I, I think these are ways in which bioethics can have a far more active voice. And, uh, you know, I the, the whole question of you don't have to be a bioethicist to be worried and concerned about this. These are really understandable issues, but you have to give yourself uh, in a realistic way to, to getting educated about it. And uh, as a society, we haven't done that yet. No, I would I would agree to in many respects, at least of which, of course, in, in my experience, it is almost uh, appalling the level of understanding uh, on this subject uh, within the healthcare industry. I mean, the, the level of understanding within the healthcare industry is unbelievably limited. Uh, for an example, a president of a major trade association headquartered in D.C., I interviewed him a few years ago, and my last question – we were discussing other issues, but I worked in as a last question this issue. And I'll never forget his answer was, well, it, it, it's, it's probably a problem for some of our members in Florida. So he understood it as simply it's an occasional disaster or catastrophic extreme event. Uh, and it happens uh, in certain places and not in others, which is, which is only fractionally true of the definition of the problem. Uh, it's more than just an extreme weather event. In fact, it's far more. Uh, Vector-borne diseases, and the list goes on, food yes. scarcity, 
uh, the, the, the massive problems with uh, ocean heat content or rapidly rising ocean uh, uh, surface water temperatures that goes on and on and on. But his understanding was was that, and, and again, that's a huge uh, learning curve uh, challenge. Um, yeah, it's, ahead, I'm, I'm glad sorry. you mentioned this, but because I think, for example, the education of physicians needs to include this, and that's something I've been working on, trying to uh, check with the institutions that I have some influence with and say, what are you doing in terms of education about the health effects of global warming? Well, you're right. Medical school education, it was non-existent up until, and still 90 plus percent non-existent. There are a few schools now yep. uh, providing curriculum. In fact, you probably know the Lancet, either the Lancet or Lancet Planetary Health, one of the two, put out a, had a theme issue on this subject. I think it was in January. Uh, numerous articles about educational program for uh, clinical medicine uh, at the graduate level at university. So that is that the, the tide there, no pun intended, is starting slowly to turn. Um, let me just ask you, speaking of education, I'd be, risk, be remiss, and this might be my uh, last question. Uh, obviously, uh, you teach at a university. There are gra- undergraduate and graduate offerings on this subject. Uh, to what extent within your field, uh, you wrote the book. Uh, I would hope this book could become a textbook widely used in undergrad and graduate educational programming. Um, but I'm hopeful that there's some reform in how this is being being taught at, at the university level. I'm very hopeful too. Um, one of the most hopeful dimensions for me is the idea that my grandchildren in high school and in college are getting a really good education in environmental health and uh, in global warming and the impacts of it. And this has uh, heartened me. You know, it's my generation and perhaps the one that follows me that I worry about the most because these are the people still in power. And uh, it's going to be too late by the time my grandchildren are, wow. are really ready to, to have their own voice in this. But, you know, long term, uh, we will have to come to grips with this. But, um, you know, every week that we delay, uh, there's a greater price to pay for doing so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Larry, we're at about our time. Uh, sorry to say, I, I very much enjoyed your comments and appreciate them. Uh, I hope the book is, I'll, I'll, I'll try to promote it as much as I can. I hope it's read widely and I hope it has, uh, as they would say, some legs to it. So with that, Professor Church, I'd like to say thank you uh, for your time today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk with you, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.